Joel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 to 17 for a sermon I've entitled, The Coming Day of the Lord. Joel 2, 1 to 17. Why don't you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again. To the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them their flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains, like crackling of flames of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arrayed for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like, a mighty, uh, like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. Nor do they deviate from their path. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush onto the city. They run onto the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who uh, carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your, all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people and sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of her room and the bride out of his chamber, or her out of her chamber. Let the priests of the and, uh, Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Johnny Cash, the country western singer, whose career spanned some 50 years during which he produced a number of big hits like uh, Ring of Fire, Walk the Line, Folsom Prison Blues, and A Boy Named Sue. Now one of his last songs that he wrote and released back in May 2002, uh, was called A Man Comes Round. It was four months before he died. Now the song begins with Johnny reading from chapter 6, verse 2 of the book of Revelation, which says this, And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. After that, the music starts and Cash begins to sing. There's a man going round taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes round. The hairs on your arms will stand up at the terror of each sip and each sup. Will you partake this lost, partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes round? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. 
Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlpool, whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard to kick against the pricks. Do you know where Johnny, Carson, or Johnny Cash got the inspiration for that song? It was from a dream he had. Cash said that in his dream he was talking to Queen Elizabeth and at one point in the conversation she compared Johnny to a thorn tree in a whirlwind. Now, he thought that sounded familiar, like something from the book of Job. When he looked it up, it does indeed talk about a whirlwind. God speaks to Job through that, but nowhere is the phrase a thorn tree in a whirlwind found in the Bible. But if you know, if you know the Bible well, I'm sure you caught many of the scripture allusions and imagery found in that song. But even if you don't know the Bible well, I'm sure you could at least identify the man who comes around as being Jesus. The song speaks of the return of Christ at the end of age when he will rescue his people and bring judgment against his enemies. That's why he sings, voices calling, voices crying. Some are born, some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. Well, in chapter 2 of the book of Joel, he speaks of the terror of the coming day of the Lord in light of which he calls on the people and us as well to repent of our sins and to turn back to God. Well, from this passage and some others in the scripture, we want to get a clear understanding of what the day of the Lord involves so that we can be prepared for the time when the man comes around. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we look at this. Help us to understand what it says so that we might be blessed by it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. And I think we can outline these verses with three phrases. The first one you can write down is just simply this. A dark day, a dark day. Secondly, a mighty army, and third, yet even now, a dark day. Joel opens up this chapter with a call to blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Most societies over the century developed some sort of an early warning system. In the Middle East, they used, uh, or Middle Ages, they used church bells. In World War II, they had the air raid sirens. In our own time, we have the emergency broadcast system. Well, in the ancient world, in Israel, what they used were the blasting of horns, animal horns, that would, they would blow to signal the people. Now here, it's not for a joyful celebration, but to announce a terrible destruction that's come upon them. It says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is, near, is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You know, this week in my Bible study, we were in... 1 Samuel chapter 28, where Saul seeks out a medium uh, to ask her to bring up the spirit of Samuel. And I entitled that lesson, Dark as the Night. But here Joel's speaking not of a dark night, but a dark day, the day of the Lord. Now in speaking of the darkness of that coming day, I think that Joel is speaking about a physical phenomenon, but one that has spiritual significance. So the darkness is both literal and metaphorical. Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? We're told now uh, it was about the sixth hour, that would be noon, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. Now that was certainly a physical occurrence, and yet it was highly symbolic because Christ as the light of the world was being snuffed out, and it's only right that the world then should be engulfed in darkness. And I'm sure it was a darkness like the darkness in Egypt where we're told it was a darkness that could be felt. Now, darkness in the Bible is often associated with God's judgment, and that's certainly here, in this case, where there's a prediction of the coming day of the Lord. It's described as a day of darkness and gloom, 
of clouds and thick darkness. You know, when you look up the passages that speak about this coming day of the Lord, you'll find that it refers to a time when God breaks into history in a dramatic way to rescue his people and to destroy his enemies. The people of Israel in Amos' day, they thought, that's great, we want that day to come. But uh, they didn't understand that uh, that day would come as a judgment on them as well. Because they were people who were living in rebellion to God. And so in order to shake them out of their self-satisfied spiritual delusion, the prophet Amos said this to him, Alas, all you who are looking for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It'll be a day of darkness, not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home, leans his uh, hand against a wall, and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Amos 5, 18 to 20. You see, Israel is going to be rescued by Christ and converted by him when they, he returns. But that's only going to be after a terrible time of persecution at the hands of the Antichrist, who they will foolishly enter into a covenant agreement with. Speaking of this coming time of Jacob's trouble, what Jesus called the Great Tribulation, Jeremiah wrote this. God speaking said, I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Jeremiah 30, verse 1. The angel that came to Daniel spoke of that same time period, reminding him that behind these physical sufferings there would be spiritual forces battling. It says this in Daniel 12:1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time your people, everyone who's name is found written in the book, will be rescued, Daniel 12.1. Now for those who are found written in the book, meaning the elect among the Jews, that will be a day of rescue. But for the others, it will be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And folks, listen carefully. After that darkness of that day, those people are going to be cast into outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That brings us to our second phrase, though, a mighty army. It starts in 2b. It says this, As the dawn spread over the mountains, so there's a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there be anything like it again. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them, and behind them flames burn. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but it's a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Now, some of the commentators think that Joel's still talking about a locust plague here, as mentioned in chapter 1 of the prophecy. I think uh, other commentators are right who argue that Joel is now shifting away from a, a locust plague to a coming invasion of the land, but he still has the locust as imagery to use for this army. Now, why do I believe that? Well, first of all, because it says, as the dawn is spreading over the mountains, so there's a great and mighty people were coming. Secondly, he uses the imagery of fire, which consumes before them, and behind them, flames burn. Now, that may be figuratively true of locusts, but it's literally true of armies. I mean, the image that come to my mind is the bombing of Dresden in Germany. Or the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Anywhere tanks run through, the flames begin to rise. And there are places in the Bible, are there not, where it speaks of a massive invasion of the land of Israel in the end times? Actually, there's a lot of places in the Bible. We don't have time to look up all of them, but I can give you a couple of them. Zechariah 14, 1-5 says this. Behold, the days are coming for the Lord when the spoils taken from you, meaning from Israel, will be divided among you. 
For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses will be plundered, the women will be raped, and half of the city will be exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against these nations as one fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west, a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half will move towards the south. You will flee the mountains, or the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled in the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. Now that passage is clearly speaking about the return of Christ. He's the Lord who goes out to fight against Israel's enemies. This great battle is also referred to in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 12 to 14, where we read this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that it was be prepared for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. That's a gross picture. Demons. For their spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. That's the day of the Lord Almighty. Behold, I'm coming quickly as a thief. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to a place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. We call it Armageddon. Joel prophesied the same battle in the next chapter. In chapter 3, he's going to say this. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let the, all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your uh, plowshares into spears and your pruning hooks into uh, uh, swords. And uh, let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come down all the surrounding nations and gather yourself there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is right, meaning the harvest of sin. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes upon multitudes in the valley of decision. For the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You know, it's interesting because... Um, Billy Graham used to use that, the valley of decision. You need to come make your decision about Jesus. Well, that's not the context. The context is Jesus is making his decisions about the nations. And by the way, in World War I, 9.7 million soldiers died in the battlefield, a lot of them choking on mustard gas in trenches. Another 10 million civilians died in that war. Less than two decades later, World War II broke out, which claimed 50 million lives. The next war, which will, world war, which will climax at the battle of Armageddon while outstretching all of them. Ezekiel tells us that after this takes place, the whole nation of Israel will go out and bury the bodies and it'll take them seven months to bury them. Let me stop here for a moment and make an obvious point. We better take sin seriously because God takes it seriously. And some good day he's going to deal with it in a decisive and devastating way when the man comes around. Now Joel uses some prophetic language, or poetic language, I should say, to describe this invasion. Look what it says in verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. With the noise of a chariot, they leap on top of mountains, like a crackling of a flame or a fire consuming the stubble, like a 
mighty people arrayed for ba- arranged for battle. And what will be the response of the people in Israel at this time? Absolute terror. It says, before them, the people are in anguish. All their faces turn pale. Why? Verse 7. Because these soldiers, it says, they run like mighty men. They climb like soldiers. And each of them march in line. Nor do they deviate from their path. They do not crowd one another. They march everyone in his path when they burst through the defenses. They do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. You know, I think about the film coverage of the fall of Berlin that the Russians took. Hitler dead in his bunker. He had just put a bullet in his head. Russian tanks rumbling down the streets of Berlin. People hiding in their basements and sewers, running and fleeing wherever they can. But they couldn't get away. Remember at the World of War series, one guy who was German talked about how they broke into his house, Russian soldiers. And they said, where are the women? Where are the women? They wanted to rape them. He took them over to the neighbor's house where it had already been hit by a bomb, showed them three or four dead women, and said, here are our women. The Russian soldiers made the cross and left. Now think of that. They make the cross after finding women that they were hoping to rape. It says, Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Now notice, whatever their motivation of these political and military leaders, it's ultimately God's will that's being carried out. He's the one leading the army, even though they're enemies of Israel. The book of Revelation speaks of the end-time city of Babylon, which will be the center of a world religion at that time. After the Antichrist uses this religion to come to power, he turns and destroys the city. But listen to the way the angel tells John this will come about. And he said to me, The waters on which the harlot, the prostitute, sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the religion is connected with The nations, politics and religion mix here. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the word of God should be fulfilled. The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it any way he wishes. So every time you read the news or catch some disturbing headline, remember that God is still sovereign. Everything that's going on is directed by order of his throne. That brings us to our last point, though. The words, yet even now. And when it comes to making predictions about the economy, Some analysts tend to be what they call bullish, meaning they think things are going to go well. Other analysts are bearish, meaning they believe it's going to be negative. Mark Faber is uh, definitely on the bearish side. The 76-year-old Swiss investor who now lives in Thailand is known as Dr. Doom. His investment letter is entitled Gloom, Boom, and Doom. Now, when you look at the world today, with the Russians in Ukraine, with economies tanking, with African countries looking at starvation, there's plenty of reason to feel gloomy. But when you read about what the Bible says the end times, day of the Lord will be like, 
There's a whole lot more reason for gloom and doom, and I would guess the booms are going to be from nuclear weapons going off. Paul asked me yesterday whether I was done with my sermon. And I said, well, I'm about two-thirds done, but I'll be ready for Sunday morning to bring you more depressing message of doom and gloom. But, you know, you can't read these passages without having some sense of being depressed. You add up the percentage of people we're told will die in these end-time judgments with the wars and the plagues and the natural disaster, you find out that it's something like half the world's population. Right now, there's 8 billion people in the world. That would mean that 4 billion people are going to die during this time. That's 66 times the number of people who died in World War II. The world's going to find out what it means to be under God's wrath when his patience finally wears out. Yet even now, it says in verse 12, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. God's not looking for torn garments, which was a sign, an outward sign of mourning. Rather, broken hearts as people thought about their own sins. We need to repent. We need to return to God with all of our hearts, acknowledging that we've rebelled against him. We've ignored him. We haven't treated his glory for the value it is. You know, the amazing thing is not that God would bring judgment. The amazing thing is that if we call off the rebellion and turn ourselves in, he's willing to pardon us and forgive us. Look what it says in verse 13. Now return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not leave or will not uh, turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You know, the ancient Assyrians, in their brutality, they made the Nazis look like amateurs. They used to flay people alive, skin them, make uh, furniture out of their bones, stack up their skulls as trophies. That's not what their enemies said about them. That's what they used to brag about themselves. Do you remember when Jonah finally arrived at the capital city of Nineveh with his message of justice? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And then we read this amazing thing. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid off aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let beast or herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both men and beasts must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And then when the Lord saw these deeds, that they had turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do so. I want to warn those of you who've heard the word of God for a long time and yet aren't saved. Jesus told the people in his day where he had done the miracles who had not repented. He said the men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation and condemn it. Because when Jonah preached, they all repented. And yet when Jesus was preaching and doing all the miracles, they didn't. They heard one message and repented. Some of you have heard three, four, five, six hundred message. You still haven't repented. Back in 17, or 1976, 
People of New York were living in fear as a result of a series of brutal murders committed by a man who became known as the Son of Sam Killer. David Berkowitz began his crime spree with a bungled murder attempt using a knife. But after purchasing a 44 caliber pistol, he went on a, to kill six people and wound seven others. Berkowitz uh, sought out young girls as his victims. He would simply walk up to the car where they were sitting and fire at them point blank. Despite an extensive manhunt, the murder not only eluded the police over years, but even taunted them for failing to catch him. In one rambling note, he said these words, Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. It was in this letter that the killer referred to himself as the son of Sam. Burkitt was eventually caught, pled guilty to his crimes. Showing no remorse at his trial, he received seven life sentences. Something unexpected happened to him when he was in prison. Opening a Bible one day, he read these words. This poor man cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Listen to what Berkowitz said afterwards. Everything seemed to hit me all at once. The guilt from what I had done, the disgust of what I had become. Late that night, in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and I began to cry out to Jesus Christ. I told him I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. And when I got up, I felt as though a very heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. Berkowitz later wrote a book about his conversion entitled Son of Hope. You see, the grace that was shown to the people of Nineveh, the mercy that was granted to David Berkowitz, is available to anyone, no matter how wicked they've been, if they would but return to the Lord. For he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. So again, the people in Joel's day and our day need to blow a trumpet, consecrate a fast, a solemn assembly, gather the people together, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride come out of her bridal chamber, let the priests of the Lord, the ministers, weep before the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance become a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where's their God? 1863. The United States was embroiled in a devastating civil war. Tens of thousands had already died and there was no end in sight. Believing the solution to the division of the nation could not be found with men, President Lincoln issued a proclamation calling on our nation to repent. Listen to his words. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations, has by resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer humiliation, and whereas it's the duty of nations, as well as men, all men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to confess their sins and their transgressions in order to, in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in Holy Scripture and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord, and inasmuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subject to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may not be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? 
We've been the recipients of the choices. I want you to think about our country and how we've been blessed. And listen to what he's saying. We've been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers and wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we've forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which has preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue on our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power and to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring with the views of the Senate, I do, by this my proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do, by request, all the people to abstain uh, on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite in their several places of public worship and their respective homes and keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to humble discharge of the religious duties proper to the solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope and authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of a nation will be heard on high, answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. Now you ask, I ask you this, can you imagine any president making a proclamation like this today? It'd be judged unconstitutional. Do you see how far we've fallen? Do you see how wicked we've become? Do you see and understand that God is holy? He must judge sins and he has to judge nations within history because after he, Jesus comes back, there are no nations to judge in that way. Do you see evidence in our country that people are, are turning in humility and prayer to God asking for forgiveness? It hasn't even begun. I heard one person put it this way. Unless God brings judgment on the United States, he's going to have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the things I tell the confirmation kids, and I've been telling them for years, I'm sure they just shrug their shoulders and roll their eyes. I say, you're going to grow up in a very different country than I did. Is it true? Some of you kids here get in trouble because you won't refer to girls as boys and boys as girls. Right? That's a stupid wickedness. Let me ask a question. Could I become a Chinese person just by wishing myself to be such? There's a guy recently who decided he was going to become Korean. So he got his eyes fixed so that they go like this. He darkened his skin. He's dyeing his hair black and now he's claiming he's Korean. And there's all kinds of people who are furious, saying that's cultural appropriation. Where does this guy get off pretending he's something he's not? Now it's ironic because he's a transgender person, he calls himself. Nobody thought he was doing something that was absurd then, but now he is. We're in deep, deep trouble. If we don't repent, he's going to bring judgment on us. And for those of you shrugging your shoulders, there were people in Ukraine about two and a half months ago who were thinking, yeah, life will go on just the way it always has. A lot of them have friends and family who are dead. Their homes are all destroyed. They're living in a foreign country. 
have no idea whether they're coming back and don't know if their dads and brothers are all going to be dead before they do. Do you think Americans are less wicked than the Ukrainians? I think not. Unless we repent. We likewise, Jesus said, will perish. And if it doesn't start with the church, where's it going to start? It's not going to start in Hollywood. It's not going to start in Washington. It's not going to start in Madison Avenue. It's got to start with us. It has to start with us. Let's pray. Our Father in God, this is just, we're in a moral revolution. We're in a time when people say that good is bad and bad is good, evil is right and light is darkness and darkness is light. And yet in the midst of all this, your truth remains and your judgment awaits those who do not repent. Our Father in God, we have to flee to your Son before the time comes. Now we may not be able to avoid judgment for our nation, but in the midst of all that, we still have to proclaim the truth because there are going to be some people who are going to get a severe wake-up call and perhaps they'll be open to the gospel message at that point. But until then, Lord, help us to keep short accounts with you, not to sin, and when we do sin, to turn back quickly and ask for forgiveness. And we thank you that you granted to us in Jesus Christ through his cross. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.